If you want to be turning in your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis chapter 45. Here in Genesis in chapter 45, Joseph's brothers have come to him. They've come for provisions. Joseph sent them back to the father's house. He's had them bring his youngest son back with him the second time. It would be the youngest brother, Benjamin. Had them come back around. And the first time they came, Joseph did not reveal himself to them. He didn't tell his brothers who he was. He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. So here they have come back on the second trip. And on the second trip, Joseph has made himself known to his ten eldest brothers, the ones that sold him into slavery. He's told them who he is and that that God has put him in this place. And at first, they're afraid because they know what they did to him. They They know what they did to their younger brother and there's fear. But Joseph said, you guys don't worry about all that. What you did, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. God always has a plan, and God always has a purpose. Sometimes it may not look just exactly right while we're going through it, but God always does everything in his own time frame. So if you want to look this morning, here in Genesis chapter 45, Joseph is sending them back to get their father. He's sending them back, and he says, you go, you go get dad, you go bring him back. He don't really know what happened after he was sold into slavery. He don't know that they told him he was killed. They don't know about the coat of many colors or the blood from the, from the goat. He don't know about any of that. He just says, you go back and get the father, and you bring him back here. So Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse 22, to all them he gave each man changes of raiment. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. To his father, he sent after this manner 10 asses laden with good things of Egypt and 10 she-asses laden with corn, bread, and meat for his father by the way. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. He said to them, See that ye fall not out by the way. They went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive. He is governor all the, over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. They told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. When he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. I want to look this morning at the spirit of revival. God, thank you so much for being so incredibly good. God, thank you for the anointed and the appointed to sing your word. And thank you for the fact that they're able to be here this morning and to share the gospel and music. God, thank you for the people that are present here in this place on this day. God, we pray most of all, Lord, would you be pleased with everything that happens here. God, I pray you take the teaching and the preaching of your word. God, I pray you administer it. Father, I know that there's some here this morning with broken hearts. God, I pray this morning would you mend some broken hearts, move some mountains, part some red seas, mend that which is broken, call in some prodigal children. God, I pray that your perfect will be accomplished in everything that we do. God, help us, Lord, to walk out of this door a better servant than we were when we walked in. We love you. We thank you and we praise you in the precious holy name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So Genesis chapter 30, I want to back up just a little bit. I want to get us all on the same page. Rachel is Joseph's, is Jacob's beloved wife. He worked seven years to get her, tricked by his father-in-law, gets Leah instead, works seven more years to get the one that he's always loved, but she's barren. 
She has no children. But in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God hearkened unto her and opened her womb. She conceived and bare a son and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. Now, when you get to Genesis chapter 37, we learn that all of the other sons, especially the 10 elder sons, they all hated their brother Joseph. It was the father's favorite, and his father made him this coat of many colors, and it says that all of them hated him. And at the end of the chapter, they have sold Joseph as a slave. They sold him to a band of Midianites who carried him and sold him to Potiphar's house and kicked off a chain reaction of things. But it says in chapter 37, verse 31, that they took Joseph's coat, they killed the kid of the goats, dipped the coat in the blood, and they sent the coat of many colors. They brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know we whether it be thy son's coat or no. He knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. Jacob rent his clothes, put sackcloth upon his, upon his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, I will go down into the grave until my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. Joseph's had a couple of dreams that didn't help his situation any because he told his brothers his dreams about how your sheaves bowed down to my sheave, and they said, we're going to serve you, and they're already not liking him. So at 17 years of age, he is sold into slavery. In the beginning, we know that Joseph was a dreamer. He had these dreams that, that God was going to make him a ruler, and his brothers would serve him. But then later on, it turns out that he is an interpreter of dreams. So after the Pharaoh king has had some dreams, he, he brings them in. He tells these two dreams to Joseph. He's been told that Joseph can interpret them. He's had two and he tells them to Joseph in Genesis chapter 41, verse 25, it says that Joseph said unto Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good kind are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. And the seven thin and ill-favored kind that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh. What God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. That's a little bit of amazing. I don't have time to preach right there, but I want you to point that out. Pharaoh is not one of God's children. He's not like an apostle Paul. He knows nothing about God. He has all of his false gods of Egypt. You know the story of all the things that he worshipped, all the things that was there, but yet God went to him to show him his plan. You need to understand that. God has taken his anointed, carried him down, and sold him under the king of of a Gentile king who is a, a without God ruler, but God went to this worldly king to show his plan for his servant's life. It says in verse 29, Behold, there come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. There shall rise after them seven years of famine. The plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land. The plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that the fam famine following, for it shall be very grievous. For that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land and take up fifth part of the land. There's a taxation of a fifth part. Everybody brings a fifth of the goods to the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food in those good years that come and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. 
That food shall be stored for the land against the seven years of famine. It shall be in the land of Egypt that the land perish not through the famine. The thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all the servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God has showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according to thy words shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. So the seven years of plenty came. They took the 5%. They put it up. There's an abundance of food there in Egypt. And, and then in verse 54, it says, The seven years of Darth began to come. We're in Genesis chapter 41 still. Verse 54, according as Joseph had said, And the Darth was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And you get down to chapter 42. Verse 1 says, When Jacob saw there was corn in Egypt, sent his son, and said, Why do ye look one upon another? Behold, I've heard there's corn in Egypt. Get ye down thither and buy for us thence, that we may live and not die. Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn, but Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall on him. This is the only two sons of Leah that he has. He says, I'm not letting him go. This is the only two that Rachel had. All the others are from Leah and, and from some handmaids. So he keeps in there. But when Joseph saw the brothers, he recognized all of them. But they didn't recognize him. He's being pretty hard on them. He's telling them, you guys are a bunch of spies. You've come into the land to try to figure out what's going on. They said, no, no, we're, we're not spies. And he accused them again. And they said in chapter 42 and verse 13, he said, thy, thy servants are 12 brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Well, I wonder how Joseph held it together right there. You know that he's talking about him, and they didn't bother to say what happened to him. Just one is not. So, so Joseph sends them away. He puts some stuff in a bag, tricks them, makes them have to come back, holds one of them. But they have to come back and bring Benjamin. They have to bring the younger brother. And then eventually, Joseph makes himself known to the brothers, and he sends for them to bring the father back. I want the Father here. We're going to make provisions, and that's what brings us to our text in chapter 45. They told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive. He's governor over all the land of Egypt. Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. They told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Sometimes we go through some stuff, right? Joseph was 17 years old. When he was sold into slavery, he was sold into the Potiphar's house. He was lied about by Potiphar's wife, cast into prison. He, he, was, he was brought out for a little while and, and put back in again. And then when he was 28 years old, he interpreted a couple of dreams for like the butler and the chef for the Pharaoh there in the prison. And it got them out of prison. But they forgot about Joseph. But then the Pharaoh started having some dreams. Joseph is 30 years old. God brings him out of that prison, brings him before the Pharaoh, and makes him the second most powerful man over all the world. Seven years of good times have come. He's 37 years old. Two years into the famine, his father's family has run out of food. 17 years old, he's sold into slavery. For 22 years, Jacob thought his son was dead. The, of his beloved Rachel, his oldest son, he thought he was dead. And now he finds out that he's alive. And it says that his spirit was revived. 
I want to look this morning at what is a revival, why do we need it, and how do we get it. A revival is not something that just happens. A revival is something that we have to desire, something we have to seek after. It's something that has to be prayed for earnestly. Without prayer, there is no revival. The word revival simply means to return to activity from a state of dullness, weakness, or laxity. To revive, according to Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, is to recover new life or vigor, to be reanimated after depression. But then the dictionary gives this as an example. When he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. I read a pretty lengthy quote this week. It didn't give the author. I would give it to you, but I'm going to read it to you. Talking about revival, it says that revival refers to a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. It encompasses the resurfacing of a love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for his word and for his church, a a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of humility, and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. Revival invigorates and sometimes deepens a believer's faith, opening his or her eyes to the truth in a fresh new way. It generally involves the connotation of a fresh start with a clean slate, making a new beginning in a life lived in obedience to God. Revival breaks the charm and power of the world, which blinds the eyes of men. Everybody still awake? I want you to hear this sentence right here. Revival breaks the charm and power of the world, which binds the, blinds the eyes of men and generates both the will and power to live in the world but to not be of the world. Revival, in many respects, replicates the believer's experience of when he's first saved. Anybody excited when you first got saved? Anybody remember how old things passed away? Behold, all things became new. Remember how there was a new sense of excitement? There was a new awareness about church. You became excited about things you'd never been excited about before, and everything was new. It says that it replicates, a revival replicates the experience of when we were first saved. It is initiated by a prompting of the Holy Spirit, creating an awareness of something missing or something wrong in the believer's life that can only be righted by God. In turn, the Christian must respond from the heart, acknowledging his or her need. Then in a powerful way, the Holy Spirit draws back the veil that the world has cast over the truth. Unlike the original conversion experience, which brings about a new relationship to God, revival represents a restoration of fellowship with God. The relationship having been retained, even though the believer has pulled away from a time. So the revival, the word revival simply means renewal or awakening. It is to restore our spirit to the level of excitement that we had when we first got saved. I will tell you this, it is impossible to restore something you never had. So you must first come to Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior. The word backslid is pretty popular in our world today. It is what a lot of people use. And boy, if you talk about backslid right out, somebody, they've got that one. They, they start thinking about somebody. Somebody right now, you're thinking about somebody. You think about somebody ain't here, somebody done fell out of church, somebody done gone back to the old way of life. Well, a lot of that stuff may be true, but you don't have to do all that to be backslid. To be backslid means I'm not as close to God as I was at one time. 
It doesn't mean you got to fall all the way back out into the world. It doesn't mean you got to land back on your old bar stool where you used to be. It doesn't mean you got to go back to hanging out with the same group you used to run with. What it means is I'm simply not as close to God. There was a time when I read God's Word more faithfully. There was a time when I prayed more fervently. There was a time when I prayed more earnestly. There's a time when we know that we were walking closer with God than what we're walking right now. It doesn't have to be some great falling away. It can be just a simple little drift. But can I tell you, if you drift long enough into the ocean, you'll get so far out you can't see the land anymore. At some point, you have to stop the drifting or you wind up completely back out to where you were. Now, the devil doesn't typically just come in and try to destroy somebody in, in a single punch. He, he doesn't come in with this, with this big blow to try to take away your, everything that you know, everything that you believe. He is a mastermind at subtly lulling people to sleep. He, he's a mastermind at, at drawing people away. You've heard me say a lot of times, nobody ever really woke up on Sunday morning and said, I'm not going to church anymore. Dumb with church. Been up my whole life, I'm just through, I'm not going back to church anymore. See, the devil doesn't work on us that way. What he does do, you've been going every Sunday morning and every Sunday night, and here we've been having, he's alive practice all day long, and you're tired. What it is is one willful choice on one Sunday night is a willful choice. I don't have anything wrong. I'm not sick. I don't have anything in the way. It is a willful choice that I don't think I'm going back tonight. The second time will be an easier choice. But eventually, you're no longer coming on Sunday nights. I'm not saying you got to go to church twice to be saved. Don't, don't, don't lose the picture here. Let's move it to Sunday morning. You make a willful choice one Sunday morning, I'm not going to church. Turkey season's open in a few weeks. I shouldn't even brought that up. Ain't nobody going to be here. They're checking on their phones right now to see what week it is. <laughs> won't, won't none of them be here unless they get to on Saturday. You make a willful choice I'm going to lay out on a Sunday morning. The first time is the hardest choice, but the second time will come easier. And before you know it, you'll get further and further away, and you find yourself out of church. You've heard me talk about a lot of times the devil doesn't. The devil wants to destroy your relationship with God. He wants to destroy your relationship with your spouse. He wants to destroy your relationship with your family. He wants to destroy the relationship with your church. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to take everything that's joyful, everything that's happy, everything that's pure, everything that's good, because all that comes from God. So a man doesn't walk out the door in the morning and say, I think I'll go ruin my life today. The devil doesn't do it that way. I've given you the illustration many times. A man goes to work, he goes to a water fountain, and he sees a woman and says, boy, she's pretty nice looking. And she thinks, boy, he's pretty nice looking. And that's kind of that. So two weeks later, you run into him again at the same water fountain. Well, now because you're both at the same place, it at least sparks a conversation. Oh, I see we're here together and work. And before you know it, they find themselves going to the water fountain a little more frequently to find a conversation they shouldn't be partaking in. The devil doesn't care if it takes two, three, four, five years to destroy your life. He doesn't care as long as he destroys it at the end, as long as everything's lost, everything's done. The devil doesn't come in and try to, to be blatant and make things recognizable. He just seeps in and cleeps in. He is a, a mastermind at lulling Christians to sleep, and he does it so subtly that before you know it, you didn't even recognize it, and you're a 1,000 miles from God, and you wonder, how did I get here? You started one little choice. But that's how the devil works. Here, just, just touch this fruit. Just smell it. It won't hurt you. Just, just take it in your hand and touch it. Step one. Number one, you had a business talking to the devil to start with. In Jesus' name, devil, leave me alone. Revival is a return to activity from a state of dullness, weakness, or laxity. Number two, how do we get revival? Revival is not something that just happens. 
Revival's been something that we put on the calendar, but if revival is nothing but a date on the calendar, all it's going to be is four nights of, well, here we are, Lord. Do with it what you can. A revival isn't something that we can manufacture. It's not something that we can buy. It's not something that, that we can create. It's something that we have to desire. It's something we have to seek God for, something that we have to pray for. If we're going to get it, we're going to have to pray for it. Amen? Everybody knows my coffee cup. I still got my Brian Free cup from the cruise. Everybody in here knows I love Brian Free's music. I listened to one coming here this morning three times. Just one. One Lord of all. One God. One cross. Just one. I, my problem is I've been listening to music so long, he don't even remember most of the songs I like to listen to. <laughs> they write so many new songs so fast. Man, I, listen, one of my favorite albums is still New York Live. Live in New York City. Y'all don't even sing none of them songs no more. You will? Yeah. Tonight, right? You're going to listen to them tonight to see if y'all remember. <laughs> you ever listen to them on that bus? That old brown KW ain't never going to die, is it? All the way to Douglas went back. They're going to be listening. Y'all came out live in New York City. We've got to learn them songs for tonight. Jack, you new man on the block, man. I like your shoes, though, by the way. You got it going on. These got to get, they got to get some Cole Hans or something. They got to get something going on. Johnson Murphy's. Yeah, they still got them old style shoes. That has nothing to do with the message. I don't know why I'm over there. Listen, these guys can sing their heart out. This, this, this isn't just a singing group. This is some people that God's given an opportunity to know over the years. This is people that their heart's real. They're, they're just as real when we get off boats of the cruise ship and go to places. Their testimony is the same. This ain't who they are on stage. This is who they are. And, and they're a walking, living testimony. But, but they can't come in here and bring a revival. Now, they can pray. They can come in here prayed up and prepared, and they can usher in the Holy Spirit. They can usher in a spirit of revival. But if a revival is going to happen in me, it's got to start here. They can't cause a revival to happen in me. I got to want to be revived. I got to want to walk with God. I want to be closer to God. I've got to want something new, something real in me. Revival's not a four-day skit where you bring in four of the best singers on the planet and a great preacher. Revival happens when God's people are prepared for revival. And God's people have to prepare by desiring it and by praying. Revival usually begins with a conviction. There has to be a conviction of the Holy Spirit. It causes, you know, when conviction comes on, people start trying to get some things right in their lives. The Holy Spirit conviction ain't necessarily one of our favorite times because he starts pointing out all the things that we're doing wrong. He starts reminding us of things that we're not doing right. So it starts with some conviction which causes us to begin to try to correct some things, to try to pray for forgiveness and to try to ask the Holy Spirit to help us renew a right walk. But, but revival does not occur outside of a prayer life. If we're not praying, we're not going to see revival. Personal revival I don't know. Yeah, I'm already, I done stepped off in it now. I might as well go and get in it. When, when you're not as close to God as, as you've ever been, that means you've taken God off the throne and set him over here beside you. Oh, me. When, when, when you're not as close, when you're not following God the way you were, now you no longer have God leading you. You have God with you, praise God. But God doesn't belong beside you or around you. He belongs in front and he himself will surround you. So, so revival simply puts God back on the throne of your life. 
Revival simply puts God back as the most important thing in your life, the first and foremost thing that we desire. There's a lot of benefits to revival, but not just to us individually. It it does create a closer walk, but to us as a church, it makes us more usable for the kingdom. We can't continue to pray, God, help us to change our surroundings one soul at a time. God, help us to change all of Troop County, Georgia. We can't do that without a revival of the Holy Spirit. When revival comes, there'll be unity in the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 says, All that believed were together and had all things in common. We looked at one accord a little bit last week. One accord, the phrase is in the Word of God 13 times. Twelve of them are in the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 1, 14 says, These all continued with one prayer. I mean, with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. Acts 2, 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Acts 2, 46, they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Acts 4, 24, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Acts 5, 12, by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Acts chapter 8 is what we looked at Wednesday night in our study this past Wednesday. Verse 6 says that the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. We were talking about it on Wednesday night. He preached Jesus Christ. He didn't preach Baptist doctrine, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Methodist. He didn't preach any of the old ways of the world. He didn't preach religion. He preached Jesus Christ. They received it. And and it says in verse number 8 that there was great joy in that city. But then the other time we find one accord, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So revival not only strengthens us individually, but it strengthens us as a unit. It is God through the Holy Spirit that calls us to revival. Jesus Christ In his seven letters to the seven churches, over in the book of Revelation, he shows us the need for revival. Chapter 2, he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. He praises them for their perseverance. He he praises them for their discernment. But but then it says in verse number 4 of Revelation chapter 2, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Many times the excitement of our salvation grows cold. We lose that zeal that we have. We lose that excitement about coming to the house of God. We become bogged down. Uh-oh, uh-oh. We become bogged down in the rituals of religion. We become bogged down in the complacency of ho-hum. Another day at church. Get up, get ready. We've got to hurry out the door. We've got to go to church this morning. You say, oh, I go, we don't have to go anywhere. Praise God, we still have the freedom to get to come. We, we become bogged down in religion. We find ourselves coming to church on Sunday morning, just going through the motions. It's just another day, but we never really fully experience serving God, 
Revival helps us to restore our first love and our passion for Christ that we remember why we're here. It's to serve him, to be strengthened by him, to be faithful by him, that we can go out and be used by him. The one that came, I said on Wednesday night, I believe it was, if salvation was all there was, God would have killed us at the moment we were saved and took us out. There's a work for us to do. God has a plan in place. Salvation was just the beginning step. He went on there in Revelation 2, 5 says, Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quick, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. You get to verse number 8. He talks to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna is a church that is suffering from intense persecution. Things are going on in their personal lives. Anybody still paying attention? Things are going on in their personal lives that are affecting their spiritual lives. That getting anybody's lap? I need to say it again. Things are going on in their personal lives that are affecting their spiritual lives. Revelation 2.10, Jesus said, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Boy, if you and I aren't careful, the cares of this world, the concerns of this world, the worries and the trials of this, this world, the frustrations of our daily personal lives will, will pull us down and tear us down emotionally. They'll tear us down physically, but worst of all, they'll tear us down spiritually. It is a revival that can lift us up to a new strength, that can restore a renewed faith. Verse number 12, he writes to the church at Pergamos, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast therein that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. God is a very jealous God. He, he doesn't try to keep that a secret. He's very bold in his word and letting us know several times he is a very jealous God. The very first commandment that he gave to his people, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why? He is a very jealous God. Anything that is in your life that you're putting before God is an idol in your life, and God will take it away or put you on your knees to take it away. God says you will have nothing before me. He went on to say in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And you say, I don't have any golden calves in my pocket. No, but you may have a golf tee in it. Or, or likeness of anything that is in heaven above. I, I don't put anything up there. Or, or there's an earth beneath that is in the water underneath. wonder how many times we've, we've missed church to go hunt some ducks or, or maybe some deer or, or maybe go fishing in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down. Listen, anytime you lay out of God's house to do something worldly, you said this is an idol. It means more to me than it does, than God does. He says, I'm not going to have it. Thou shalt not bow down thyself nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. I didn't say that. God did. He said, if you put anything ahead of me, then you hate me. Chapter 34, verse 14, he says, Thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God cannot, God will not allow 
compromise. He will not allow his children to compromise. Jesus said very plainly, we're either for him or we're against him. If we're not for him, then we're definitely against him, and there is no common ground. There is no middle of the road. There's no compromise with worldly views. There's no compromise in a Christian with worldly values. There, there is no place for worldly perspectives in the belief system of a child of the king. There, there is no place in the belief system of a Christian for worldly things to step up. Revival helps us to discern the spirit, to try the spirit, to see what manner it is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God. Many false prophets are going out into the world. Hereby you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God. We cannot tolerate false teachings. We cannot tolerate false teachings. Not on the news, not in our schools, not in our government, certainly not in the church. Not, not in our lives. Revival helps us to try the Spirit to see whether or not they be of God. Then in chapter 3, he talks to the church at Sardis. It says, the angel of the Lord to the church of Sardis, right? These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know that works. Thou hast the name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that thou art ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come upon thee as a thief. Thou shalt not know what hour I come upon thee. Thou hast a few names in Sardis which have not defiled the garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Sardis is a church that is representative of the church that's just going through the motion. They have their services. They have their choir. They have their musician. They, they have everything wrapped up in a nice, neat little package. They have their little sermonettes as long as you don't get on anybody's toes or they might not tithe well. Make sure everything's kept in a nice, neat, clean little box so that you don't use the Word of God because the Word of God might actually cut somebody, might actually offend somebody. They, they go through, their, they're outwardly present. It looks like they're having church. Outwardly present, that they're going through the motions. They're, they're trying to maintain this certain image, but inwardly there's no spiritual life. That's what he says to this church. You look like you're having church. You, you look like you're doing good. But inside... There is no spiritual power. Revival helps breathe new life into something that was on life support. There are a lot of churches on life support just barely getting by. It breathes something new into us, a spiritual awakening. But then verse number 7 of chapter 3, he writes to the church at Philadelphia. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast it which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. I will write upon him the name of my God. In the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Jesus warns us of a life that does not bear fruit. If a Christian is a Christian, if a fruit tree is a fruit tree, then it ought to bear fruit. If it's not bearing any fruit, he says, cut it down, throw it into the fire. 
So, so he tells us that, that a life that doesn't bear fruit is a life that's not being lived for Christ. A revival is kind of like fertilizer. If you want something to bear more fruit, what do you do? You till the ground around it and you fertilize it out of the end of the roots to help it bear fruit. So revival is not to come in and listen to music and to preaching like what we'll hear tonight when, when our brother gets here to preach. But, but it's to come in and to revive, to add fertilizer. That when we go out of here, we might bear fruit. Then in verse number 14, we get the lukewarm church. I know thou works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou, thou work cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The church is the bride of Christ. Together we are the mystical body of Christ. To get lukewarm, you got to do one of two things. You either got to mix hot and cold. Or you got to take what's hot and set it on the shelf, pull it away from the fire. See, that's what the devil's done to a lot of churches. You take water, it's boiling hot, and you set it to the side. Anybody paying attention, I'm almost done. See, when I tell them that, they think I'm getting close. They don't like I still got hours. <laughs> you take boiling hot water and you set it all to the side, and what happens? It begins to cool off, and it begins to cool off, and it begins to cool off. And the longer it stays away from the fire the cooler it gets until it gets to what? Room temperature. When the water gets to room temperature left away from the fire, the water is controlled by its surroundings. If the room is warm, the water gets warm. If the room is a little colder, the water gets a little colder. That is exactly what happens to the child of God when you get away from this book. That is exactly what happens to the child of God. When we get away from the fire, away from the Word of God, we become controlled by our surroundings. Nobody can see God in us. Nobody can see Christ on us. We're not ever going to reach anybody because we're not controlling the temperature of the room. The room is controlling the temperature of the Christian. That's what happens. We become lukewarm. Or you can simply take hot and cold, mix it together, and you still get lukewarm. I believe that's a lot of where we are today in the church. You mix hot and cold, you get lukewarm. There are some churches that are hot today. There are some churches that are on fire. There are some churches that are serving God with all they got. Then there are some churches going through the motion. You got some hot and you got some, some ice cold. But if we don't keep the fire going, then the church becomes controlled by the temperature of its surroundings. What's true is in our life is true as the church life because we are the church. God help us. What we have here is the Laodicean church. It represents the final, I mean, that's what we're in right now is the church age. From the day of Jesus Christ, first appearance of the day of Jesus Christ, second appearance from the church age. It's a dispensation period of grace. And we're in the final days of the church age. What's going on overseas, I don't know if it's got anything to do with it or not. But every morning I get up and look up one more time. Every day y'all be telling somebody about Jesus because every day is one day closer to him coming back. It don't matter if it's 10,000 years from now. Tomorrow is still going to be closer than it is today. Every day is a day to look up. One day he's going to step out. But, but we as the church, we're to be kingdom builders. But we're in this day of the seventh age. We're in the day of the Laodicean church. The question for every believer is what kind of Christian do I want to be? Do I want to be one that controls the temperature of the room around me? Do I want to be one that's controlled by those around me? The same thing is true with the church. We can come in here this morning. These guys can sing. I can preach. Man, we can 
stay here from 2 o'clock to, to 5.30. We can do He's Alive practice, get everything ready, be back tonight, go through the motions. They can come sing the house down again. We can have a great message tonight. I mean, man, we, we just we can go through the whole week. You got Jeff and Susan Wisnett coming in here tomorrow night. They can come in and sing their hearts out. Karen Peck, New River coming back Tuesday and Wednesday. They can bring all the spirit into the place. Brother Guy Roberts can come in here and he can preach his soul out to this church. But if we don't come expecting revival, if we're not prayed up, if we're not spiritually ready for a revival within our own lives, then we're not going to experience anything different. All we're going to be doing is going through the motions. You're just going to have four nights of services, four nights in a row, but nothing changes. We'll have a name that we're alive. We'll even put on a play called He's Alive. The question is, are we? Am I spiritually alive or do I need to step up to another level? Here's what I know and here's what I believe. I know I want more than complacency. I know I want more than just church as usual. I know I want more than to just go through the motions. And here's what I believe. So do you. See, I want to see God move. I want to feel the Holy Spirit of God in the place. I want to see God move mountains. I want to see God part red seas. I want to see God call home some prodigals. I want to see some sicknesses healed. I want to see some broken marriages mended. I want to see some lives changed. I want to see some young boys called to preach. I want to see some more musicians called into the field. I want to see a mighty movement of the Holy Spirit of God. I, listen, I don't want anything from you. I want everything for you. I want the power of God to pour out on your life. Pour out on your home. Pour out on your families. Pour out on your workplace and use you in a mighty way. I want my spirit renewed within me, within us, that God might use us. Psalm chapter 51, in my opinion, is one of the greatest prayers of repentance in all the Bible. David has obviously been with Bathsheba. He's had Uriah murdered on the battlefield. But now the prophet... Prophet has come and brought him warning. Nathan has told him, Thou art the man. David has gone on his knees before God. He's praying. He's confessed his sins in Psalm 51, verse 7. He said, Purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Revive me to where I was when I first got saved. Bring me back to that spot and uphold me with thy free spirit. Guys, y'all want to get ready. You, you can come on. Several years ago, D.L. Moody heard Henry Barley make this statement. Henry Barley said, The world has yet to see what God will do with one man who has fully surrendered to him. The world has yet to see what God will do with one man who has fully surrendered to him. D.L. Moody said, By God's grace, I'll be that man. I wonder, do we even want to be that man? Do we even want to be the one that, that God can use to do extraordinary things in extraordinary ways? Because if we do, there's no better time to start than right now. 
I mean, yesterday was better, but we can't get that one back. So right now is the next best time we got. Tomorrow's not as good as today. If we really want to be that kind of person, now is the time. Now is the time to pray. Now is the time to seek God's face. Now is the time to be real. Now is the time to ask God, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my failures. Forgive me for my shortcomings. Forgive me for my continual drift in the wrong direction. Draw me back close to you. Wash away all my iniquities and create a new spirit within me. I wonder if we'll pray earnestly for God to send a revival in me. God send a revival in the church. We put this on the calendar a few weeks back. We lined up the people that will be coming, including the preacher. And we've waited for tonight to start a revival right in this church. We've been waiting with excitement for weeks. But if we don't pray, if we don't come seeking for God to change what's in here, we're going to go through the motions for four nights. And Wednesday night ain't going to be any better than tonight or this morning or next Sunday or any other time. And we'll put on He's Alive up here April 15th, 16th, whatever it is. And we'll look like we're alive. But Jesus said inside, you're still dead. I don't want to be like that. Amen. I, I want to I be that one. I want to be like D.L. Moody says, by the grace of God, I want to be that one. I don't want just me to be that. I want us to be that one. I want, I want the world to see what God can do with one church fitly joined together to serve him. One church united in revival. One church united in Christ. I want to see what God will do. The only way to do that is for us to be that church that draws closer to him. Amen. I want to ask you guys, if you would, you can bow your head right where you're at. I want to ask you, if you would, to pray for revival in this church. Pray for revival in me. Pray for revival in you. Pray for revival in us. But just pray. If you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you need to pray for salvation before you can pray for revival. You can't reestablish what you never had. Are you willing to say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I'm asking you to come into my heart, forgive me of my sins, and save my soul in Jesus' name? That's not a poem. You don't get to just repeat that and go home unchanged. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you, he's the only one that can. If the Holy Spirit is telling you you need to be saved, he's the only one that can. He's drawing you now. It's up to you to confess your sins and ask him to be Lord of your life. Surrender the throne. Give him access. Say, Lord, I just want to be saved in the name of Jesus. If you're faithful to pray, he's faithful to save your soul. You guys are welcome. The altar's open. I don't ever close them. Matter of fact, if you want to go ahead and stand right where you are, go ahead and sing a song.